turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're all aware of the tsunami that hit here. It was it 2003 or something? We talk about the way in which it decimated so much of uh, the... Um, just lost the name of the country. Indonesia. Thank you, Jarrell. Drawing a blank here. Decimated so many parts of Indonesia. And of course, this island chain had something like 7,000 islands in it and, and, and so many different people groups. And, and sadly, a lot of those that were impacted were uh, individuals that, that had nothing. And by the time the tsunami had rolled through and done its devastation, uh, had even less. And of course, tremendous loss of life. We remember that story. Were you aware of another tsunami that hit? Going back a few years, back to 1998, that uh, that impacted another part of that uh, that region of the world down off the coast of Australia, um, in New Guinea, and there too, not unlike the big tsunami that hit Indonesia uh, in 2003 or so, uh, the devastation and loss of life was severe. It was deep. It was significant. Sadly, the story of this did not make the headline news, but the aftermath of the manner in which God helped rescue so many people impacted by all of this and the ability of the Christian community to come together and to support one another in the face of the the devastation, even as we count the devastation of what's transpired in the last month in uh, in uh, the result or the wake of, of Hurricane Sandy, uh, fresh in the mind of all of us. It's an amazing story of um, not just simply tragedy, but how God can turn a horrific tragedy into a story of hope and ultimately transformation. We're joined now by John and Bonnie Nystrom. They are involved with uh, the Wycliffe Bible Translators, and we'll tell you a bit about that amazing ministry if you're not familiar with it a little bit later on in our conversation. Uh, John and Bonnie have written a new book detailing the uh, effects of that tsunami of 1998 on Papua New Guinea and the aftermath, the story of hope and restoration found inside the pages of their new book called Sleeping Coconuts. And uh, John and Bonnie Nystrom, great to have you on the program. Yes, hello, Craig. Hi, Craig. Good to join you. John, tell us first what uh, what first led you and Bonnie down to this part of the world. It's off the coast of Australia. Most folks outside of basic geography don't know much about that part of the world or uh, this this amazing uh, region of that part of the island that uh, I was surprised to find out recently. Boy, talk about cultural diversity. Over 841 different Languages. Some folks didn't realize that many existed in the, in, the, in the entirety of the history of the world, let alone in one small region of the world. That's right, yeah. Papua New Guinea is the most linguistically diverse uh, country in the entire world, over 800 languages, as you said. And um, that's part of the reason why we went there, because there are so many people there who don't have God's Word in their own language and are trying to, and some believers there, pastors, 
trying to preach God's word out of um, a translation that most of the people that they're preaching to don't really understand very well. And uh, we believe everybody deserves to have the word of God in the language that they understand best. And that's what uh, Wycliffe Bible Translators is all about. And um, so that's why we we went to Papua New Guinea because of the great need there. And, you know, I want to spend a moment talking about this before we get into the details of tsunami and the aftermath. When we talk of the need for individuals to be able to read God's word in their own language, people kind of stop on that and say, well, wait a minute now. You know, the the Bible has been translated into so many languages uh, since its origins. Can it possibly be with uh, all the modern technology that we have? And I can go to Google Translate and type in a phrase and instantly, you know, I have it translate for me in a matter of seconds. Can it possibly be that there are parts of the world that certain people groups, even to this day, don't yet have access to God's Word in their own language? Uh, Yes, that's correct. In fact, there are um, 2,000 languages of the world that still don't have the the Gospel and the Word of God in their own language. And actually, for the first time in history, that number dropped below 2,000 last year, um, which is a really exciting thing. But the thing that um, makes these languages different than most that you would think of is that these are minority languages, um, sometimes only spoken by a few hundred, a few thousand people. Some groups, of course, are larger, but these aren't the majority languages that people know. They're not written. There's no alphabet in these languages, and they have been marginalized and ignored for most of history. So um, for them, um, we believe that God intends for them to hear his word in their language as well. Is there a roadblock here in terms of outreach and evangelism? We know the, the critical 1040 window and all of the emphasis that has been placed on it. I think we certainly understand at a, at a level that the ability of someone to be able to hear or have access to God's word in their own language is important. But is it making that critical of a difference? When you talk about, uh, for for example, Bonnie, some of these minority people groups where there might be several hundreds, maybe a few thousand people that know the language, and that's about the extent of it. And I think to myself, wow, you, you're really not going to pick up on volume <laughs> when it comes to the to making up for the time and the expense that's involved in uh, in, in engaging in a translation, be it uh, translating the Bible uh, you know, into the written word or even perhaps vocally. Uh, Yes, that's right, and that's an important question to ask. In a lot of places, some of these languages are nearly extinct. There are very few people that speak them anymore. But I think Jesus set an example, and he talked about going after the one and leaving the 99. Um, Every individual person um, God is interested in, and so his economy, in God's economy, um, he does not um, skimp and save and try to be efficient when he goes after the one that is lost. And if I can can add, when Jesus said to go and make disciples of all nations, and nations, you know, we understand it's all people groups, which are very often determined by language, he didn't say go and do that where it's cheap or easy or uh, not remote. And are you seeing results? And I, I almost, with hesitation, ask that question only because so often I think we as as Christians want to go where it's easy. Uh, we love to be able to uh, cast our, our seeds into fertile soil and see uh, huge results. Uh, certainly from an American Christian point of view, it's all about the numbers. And we look at the work that 
Wycliffe is doing and and your partnership now through the years, John and Bonnie, uh, with the organization and say, wow, traveling so far away to be able to provide God's word to such a small number of people, is it really worthwhile? Is it making a difference? Well, you know, the the translation of the scripture into uh, the language of, say, 500 or 1,000 people has an impact on those people. God is able to speak to them in the language that they understand, and and they are able to um, hear that from God himself and not just say, well, I believe this because this person came and told me, or I believe it because that person said it. But they can believe it because they've seen it in God's word. But it's not just those people. It's the next generation. It's their children. It's their neighbors. Uh, we're seeing in um, the, the language project that we're working in now, the pastors that have the scriptures are getting the scriptures are starting to think about the language communities next door. Mm. So it's not just um, a one-for-one. One. It's definitely a multiplication process in terms of um, giving the scriptures to a few, but then it gets passed on to generation and to neighbors. And, and I guess, you know, just thinking back in that scripture in my mind uh, where we are mandated to go out into uh, Judea and some Mary in the uttermost parts of the earth. It doesn't say go where it's easy. Uh, go where you can have find a convenient location to uh, to stay the night at a Hilton hotel or a Sheridan. <laughs> uh, it, it, it is without qualification, and I guess toward that end, to reach all of the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't say that it ought to be just the majority people groups or the predominant languages, but even those small people groups, uh, because for every one of whom, as you point out, Bonnie, Christ died, and there can indeed be a multi-generational impact of all of this work. Yeah, that's that's right. And one of the exciting things is that, as Bonnie mentioned, there's about 2,000 languages that still need scripture, that don't have any yet. That number, for the first time in history, is starting to go down. For the longest time, we've been discovering more languages and finding more people who, who needed needed scripture, and that, that number kept going up. Now the Bible translation movement is accelerating so fast that the um, that, that number's finally coming down. And the, the person who may be the Bible translator for the very last language may now be alive. It may be a young adult at this point, and people who are young adults now may see this entire project of the church, getting the Bible translated into every language, they may see that in their lifetime. Wow. That's exciting. I want to pause on that point, because if this story was simply about the work of Wycliffe and the dynamic things that are taking place in being able to uh, reduce the number of people, groups, and languages that don't have access to God's Word and see more people impacted, uh, that would be a great story in and of itself. But uh, to kind of get into the heart of Sleeping Coconuts is what we want to do in a moment here. And I tell you, uh, when that uh, tsunami rolled through there in Papua New Guinea back in 1998, the, uh, the coconuts were doing anything but sleeping. That day. We'll find out what happened as we continue our conversation. John and Bonnie Nystrom with us today. We'll take a time out, get you updated on traffic, then back with more as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation with us today uh, from our friends at Wycliffe Bible Translators. We've got to John and Bonnie Nystrom. They are sharing some experiences with us um, on the heels of their own encounter with a tsunami that took place back in uh, 1998. Now, uh, John and Bonnie, when we talk about 
devastation. Certainly the pictures that we've seen coming out of Long Island and out of uh, uh, portions of New York and New Jersey in the wake of Hurricane Sandy have been horrific and and unbelievable the amount of suffering that many of the people have gone through there. I mean, whole neighborhoods completely destroyed. But I guess on a level... Even the worst of what we've seen here in the television news over the last several weeks kind of pales in comparison to what transpired there in in your part of the world in Papua New Guinea back in 1998. Yes, that's correct. And, um, you know, the, the pictures that we see of the devastation now, um, at least we have pictures to see. And that's where the, the title of the book comes from. When we first flew over the, um, the village after the tsunami, the the thing that struck me the most was that it looked like no one ever lived there. It didn't look devastated. It looked like a beautiful, pristine, clean beach with um, with no evidence that people had ever lived there. Had ever lived there. That's how significant the devastation was. And. Um, when we first heard about the tsunami um, the day after it actually happened, we were about 300 miles away at the National Translation Center, and we were trying, we, we got word that something had happened, we were trying to figure out what happened, of course all communication was cut off. We finally got a hold of a pilot who had flown over the village um, that morning after the tsunami, and and we kept asking him, well, could you see this? Could you see that? Could you see our house? Could you see the, the remains of the big church that was there? And finally he just said, stop asking. He said, there's nothing there but sleeping coconuts. And by that he meant coconut trees that just lay flat on the ground, um, had been knocked down by the waves and were just laying there. So the devastation um, pictures that you saw were, were of places that were miles away, just on the very edge of the tsunami where a few buildings had been knocked down. But right in the center of it, there just was nothing left. Every person, um, every house, everything had been washed off the small sand spit where the people lived into the lagoon and across into the mangrove swamps. And let's help people understand here, John, that the infrastructure is not much to speak of to begin with. I mean, a lot of this is is made up of uh, whatever wood that folks can get their hands on. Uh, oftentimes, uh, particularly in uh, places of the world that experience uh, hurricanes and monsoons and so forth, uh, you might be lucky to be able to pull together a bamboo and things of this sort, uh, oftentimes in higher elevations, in order to address all of this. Uh, and there, there really isn't much in terms of the ability of any of these quote-unquote structures or the infrastructure itself to withstand even a mild uh, hurricane, let alone a typhoon. That's right. Yeah, they don't don't normally get hurricanes there. And, you know, I thought that whole place was really safe because it's so close to the equator that hur- hurricanes can't start spinning there. They don't just get they just don't get them. Um, but I was wrong about that. It was, the, you know, there the um, our friends houses are made out of 99 percent of what's in their houses. They grow on their own land. And that other one percent is nails that they buy in town. And that's a town 17 miles away. And that's where the nearest electricity is. But but no, their homes and ours were no match for three 30-foot waves. Just absolutely, uh, that much water can just take everything in its path. Wow. How much or, or, or how widespread would you say it was the destruction? I think it was only about, uh, I think, 18 miles or so across uh, down the coast. And the reason for that was because the epicenter of the earthquake that caused it was just offshore. It, it wasn't mm. very far offshore at all. So um, that was uh, a good thing that it was so um, 
so localized. But for the Arabs who live right across from where the, where it, where the earthquake uh, happened, um, they lost a third of the people who speak their language. So for them, it was you know totally devastating. Yeah, I was to say this this has got to be regarded as total devastation. We're talking about yeah. thirty foot high tall uh, waves rolling to shore, and to put that into perspective for our listeners, thirty feet. Uh, we're talking about the equivalent of a three story building. I'm, I'm sitting in a three-story building right now. I can't imagine waves coming in this high, how far into the shore that they would reach. And it would seem to me that wherever they reached, John, they would pull back to sea. The, literally, the, the ocean would reclaim everything in its path. Am I right? Uh, yes. What didn't end up in the mangrove swamps was sucked out back to sea. And you know, this this earthquake that caused the tsunami was actually not that big and relatively it was only a 7.1 and so the tsunami itself is probably one of the most studied tsunamis around and a lot of people came afterwards to to um to figure out what happened and what they think happened is an underwater landslide that actually displaced the water and sent the waves across and they were able to determine how tall they were by marks on trees that were left that did actually survive and they were able to mark and see where the damage on the trees were. So these these waves that came across pushed everything inland or in through a lagoon into the mangrove swamps and then began to pull everything back out. So a lot of people who were found themselves alive still in the lagoon had to then fight that back current um, to stay within sight of shore, with you know, and stay alive, actually. So even assuming that they survive all of this, they are coming back to the total destruction of their village, the total loss of their livelihood, family members who are missing, and, boy, talk about seemingly a scenario that is just utterly wrought with hopelessness. And let me help but listeners understand, FEMA doesn't come to the rescue. Uh, the governor doesn't get on television and appeal for folks to donate to the Red Cross. Uh, you don't have military personnel sweeping in to provide generators and portable water and things of this sort. You're kind of left on your own. You had very little to begin with, and now you've got literally nothing out of which you have to try and rebuild. How did God intervene in this most deplorable of natural disasters? We'll talk about that aspect of the story as our conversation with John and Bonnie Nystrom continues a look at sleeping coconuts, how God can turn a horrific tragedy into a story of hope and transformation. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And back to our conversation, John and Bonnie Nystrom with us. They, of course, have been engaged with Wycliffe Bible Translators. And uh, we're down in Papua New Guinea back in 1998 when an earthquake struck, the ensuing tsunami, literally in some cases uh, producing waves that were 30 feet high, rolled ashore. And, I mean, imagine wiping out half the population. Uh, and then people that have so very little to begin with being left with absolutely nothing. And as I point out, John, uh, FEMA doesn't show up. The military doesn't ride into town and and help people uh, in the aftermath of a disaster like this. Folks are pretty much left on their own, aren't they? 
Well, to a certain extent, yes. But the the nearest village to them um, hosted them for the next few months while material aid came in and food aid came in. A new road was built through that village so things could be brought in. So some aid did come. But probably the most helpful thing that happened was the churches got together and got a counseling program together to help people through their grief. And one of the best things they did was to have people write down their stories of what happened that night, stories about the people who... um, who they um, knew who were involved in the tsunami, who died, their relatives and friends. And one of those who um, wrote a story during that time was Pastor Peter Marokiki, a good friend of ours who works on the Bible translation as well. And his firsthand account of that night of the tsunami, trying to um, rescue people, trying to save his own family, trying to find his kids who were lost in the darkness after the waves hit, his story about all of that became the basis for the first chapter of our book. And um, another great thing that happened as a result of that is we started thinking completely differently about how we do um, the Bible Translation Project. Before the tsunami, some of the languages in the area, too, that were nearby and the east and west of us had been asking us for help with the um, Bible translation in their language. And I would say, well, you know, Bible translation is done one language at a time. We need to finish in Arup first, the, the language, the village we were living in, the language we were working in. And then maybe we can help you. Maybe, you know, it might be another decade before we can do that. Wow. But at, right after the tsunami, Bonnie and I and the three Arup translators who had survived, we went, the whole team, we went from, there's no way we can help these nearby languages to we have to find a way to help them. And uh, that's where the, the real story begins of how the Lord t- took this terrible tragedy and as a result we're now working in 11 languages instead of just one and that 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 way of doing translation turns out to be a much better way to do translation not only to get better quality but lots more languages are getting um, the bible because of what happened and are you seeing this also in terms of opening up doors? I mean, when people are literally devastated with nothing, uh, we run out of ourselves and suddenly we start turning and we start looking for answers. Uh, did this open up the doors to Bonnie in terms of a greater ability to, to, to reach those within the island and share the gospel? Uh, yes, in fact, that was um, that was the motivation for the Arup translators to uh, to actually expand the project. We said, you know, your translation could be done in a couple of years. I think at that time we were predicting five years or so. You, we could be done, and then we could help them. And they said, no, we have to do this now. People's eyes are opened, and by that they meant people are asking questions. They want to know why this happened. They they want to understand. And now's the time to to do this um, while people still are are motivated to um, to participate so that um, motivation then brought in these other languages as John already said we started the new translation project and and people were able to um, start with uh, basic portions of scripture and start looking at um, what Jesus said Our, the first book we translated that's been published now was the book of Luke and in in that um, book Jesus says that you know you you will see trouble there's no there's no promise of a of a trouble free life in fact um, there are questions in there about about uh, people who uh, towers who fell and and things like that and, and Jesus just says you know bad things happen but it's important for you to pay attention to your own life and to repent of your own sins the back side of the story talk to us about um, 
that sense of how God has had his hand throughout all of this. We are the better part now of, uh, what is it, uh, 14 years after all of this transpired. Looking back on all of this and what God has done in and through this disaster over the uh, now uh, decades since then, how have things changed? Well, the, the the best part of what's happening is that so many more people are getting God's Word in their language. And just to give you an example, we, one of the men from one of those languages that had come and asked us for help that we were putting off, he took some, this man took some scripture in his own language home, read it to his family, and his daughter said, Daddy, this is so delicious. Delicious! Isn't that a... Isn't that a great description of what God's word is to us when it speaks clearly to us in our own language. But that's not all she said. She also said, she said, Daddy, this is so delicious. Can you bring us some more? Can you bring us some more? That's what what we're doing is all about. Making God's word available to more people in more languages sooner. Not just in this project, but but all over the world. You know, there are there are Bible translation projects underway in about 2,000 languages around the world, and Wycliffe's involved in about 1,500 of them or so, and another 500 are being conducted by partners of ours, and um, it's an awesome time to be alive to see so many people getting God's Word in their language for the very first time. Well, and the amazing thing is then, too, we're seeing so much fulfillment of, of prophecy in that sense, in, in with yeah. regards to uh, uh, the gospel being so widespread, and uh, that every tribe and tongue would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ in their own language. Toward that end, if you would, just spend a moment, uh, John and Bonnie, talking a bit about the ministry of Wycliffe. Uh, Folks have heard the name. They might kind of at the periphery be uh, familiar with what the ministry does, what the organization does. But just spend a moment, if you would, and kind of give us a thumbnail sketch of the work of, of Wycliffe Bible translators around the world. Sure. Wycliffe exists to see that everybody has an opportunity to have the Word of God in the language that's most meaningful to them. And we do that by partnering with other with other groups who are also interested in getting God's Word into people's languages, and that's what we're all about. And as I said, we, we're involved currently in about 1,500 or so languages around the world. And there are lots of ways to be involved as well. You know, there at your radio station, there's a whole lot of people that surround you in order for your show to go on the air, and that's the way it is with Bible translation. There's some people who are out uh, in villages and facilities facilitating Bible translation to happen, but there's a whole network of people um, around the world um, back in their home countries and on the field that are part of that process. One of the things that um, we believe as Wycliffe is that, that prayer is actually the first step to any language community getting the Bible. And there's a, Wycliffe has a, uh, a program called the Bibleist People's Prayer Project, BP3. And if you go to Wycliffe.org, you can learn more about the Wycliffe ministry, but you can also learn how you could pick a, a people group that still does not have the scripture and start praying for them. And, um, and perhaps in your lifetime, even see that translation work started and maybe even finished. And uh, your work down there in Papua New Guinea, how, how have things progressed? Well, last Bonnie mentioned that last year we published Luke. This year we're publishing Acts in several languages. Right now, the translators, uh, as we speak, it's uh, Wednesday morning there, and they are working on uh, the book of First Timothy, and uh, that's a great thing for pastors since it's a letter from a pastor to a young pastor. And we hope to be publish some of the pastoral epistles next summer. 
Folks want to get more information. Um, there's a link, I'm assuming, to the Wycliffe website through uh, sleepingcoconuts.com. There sure is. That's right. Sleepingcoconuts.com is the best place to go. for. Um, there's a, a one-minute video trailer about the book, and there's also a link if people are interested in buying the book. And uh, there's a link to Wycliffe there as well. And uh, it's uh, been a pleasure talking to you. I really appreciate you having us on. It's uh, We love telling our story. We love telling about all the amazing things the Lord has done and lifting up his name in that way. Well, we sure appreciate you spacing some time uh, with us tonight, uh, John and Bonnie, and sharing your story. You know, I'm reminded of an experience I had number of years ago in the interior of China and uh, gathering with a group of fellow Christians there. And we met this man in kind of a a nondescript location. Uh, a number of us gathered together uh, that were uh, traveling broadcast journalists from the United States, and uh, we were there with some missionaries and so forth, working in the deep in the interior of uh, communist China. And uh, one gentleman that we met came in, and I remember him wearing uh, flip flops or the shower shower shoes and uh, a pair of jeans and a jacket that was kind of dirty. And he sat there very quietly uh, and listening to the conversation. And folks were taking taking turns sharing about their work and what they were doing. And some were pastors and some were teachers and evangelists and whatnot. And finally got around to this gentleman and his story unfolded. It turns out that um, he had been called of God about 25 years ago to undertake translating the scripture from uh, Mandarin Chinese uh, into his particular people group's language, of which there were only about 800 people. But he was persuaded of God that they had the right and the need to be able to read God's word in their own language. And so he went through the tedious process of doing the translation and finally completed do so. Uh, They got the printing plates put together and began publishing. And the communist authorities found out they came in. They destroyed all the printing plates, gathered every copy of the scripture they could get their hands on, burned it, put this man in jail. Three years later, he's released from jail. And that impression of the Holy Spirit, of the importance of this people group having God's word in their language, had not grown any softer. In fact, it was stronger, even more so, following what the Chinese communist authorities did. So he set about translating all over again. And he went through the entire process again, many, many, many years of of labor at all of this, and finally completed the task of getting the scriptures together and getting the printing plates done and went into the process of beginning to do the publication and you probably know where the story is going yes the officials found out once again destroyed all the copies they could get their hands on put him in jail this time for even longer time and by the time we met him he had been out of jail only about a year and a half and was in the process of starting all over again. Now, I can't have fathom what it would be to translate Genesis to Revelation from, say, English into Italian, let alone to go through this process twice over, spend jail time for being involved in this, and yet be so persuaded of the importance of God's Word read by your own people in their own language, that he was willing to dedicate more of his life. And literally, this is all this man has done, is translate. It's all he's really done over the course of 25-something years. I would suspect by now that he's finished that translation and would pray God that uh, this time around the printing plates survive. But 
I think it's demonstrative of the importance of what it means that when God puts a, a burden on your heart, when you have fell in, fallen in love with Jesus through his word, what it means to have God's word in your own language. And a lot of us don't relate because how many Bibles do you have at home? Five, six, ten copies? Oh, you got the one that you keep in the bathroom. You got the one by the nightstand. You got the big fancy one that, you know, has got all the birth dates and the wedding dates and so forth. It sits under a pile of dust underneath the coffee table. Then you've got the one that sits in the car. Then you have your one in your purse or maybe in your briefcase. And then you've got, of course, the, tra- the comparative ones because sometimes you can't really understand what's being said. And so you like to be able to look at four different versions side by side. Then you've got the study Bible and on and on the list goes. Five, ten copies maybe more, and some people in some parts of the world have zero. Not because they don't want one, but because none exist. And so goes the story of the work of the Wycliffe Bible Translators. We appreciate so much, John and Bonnie, being with us tonight. We pray for your ministry. Thanks so much for taking some time to spend the evening here. Sleeping Coconuts, and again, the book available through the website. More information, too, about Wycliffe at sleepingcoconuts.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It's a disease which impacts more than 20 million Americans. And while our understanding of its origins and its impact on our body is increasing, sadly then, too, are the number of diagnosed cases every single year. I'm speaking of type 2 diabetes. And as we speak about the 20 million Americans that it impacts on this very day, the big question is, what is it? How does it impact us? And most importantly, what can be done to reverse the impact of diabetes without medication? Joining me in studio today is Dr. John Dong, a board-certified integrative health specialist, licensed with the Pastoral Medical Association, and author of the free report, The Truth About Your Diabetes and How to Get Rid of It Once and For All Without Drugs or Insulin. Dr. Dong, great to have you with us again. Thank you, Craig. So, Doctor, explain to us why your passion and interest specifically in the arena of diabetes and thyroid disease. Diabetes, because my dad, he, he was a diabetic uh, when he was uh, 60 years old. And my mom, she have a Hashimoto autoimmunity, which is her only immune system is attacking her thyroid. Something is not working because my dad was a diabetic and he has an open heart surgery at the age of 60. That concerns me a lot. What I was thinking is that if he has an open heart surgery at the age of 60, I would have an open heart surgery at an earlier age, which is like 55. So therefore, I need to do something like that, take actions for my health. I need to do something that will impact my dad's health for the futures and also impact my health and also impact on my kids. Therefore, I study functional medicines. I always have a belief this, that the body is able to heal itself because God gives us the power to heal. The healing should be inside out instead of outside in, which is the medication. So I have that belief. And then I start studying functional medicines. And I said, my dad was a diabetic. He's no longer taking any diabetic medications. And my mom says the same thing. She has a thyroid problem. Her thyroid is affecting her health. It's also affecting her job because she's making a lot of mistakes at work. have two warning letters. So not until that I studied functional medicines. Now, until I did all the appropriate tests to identify that she have an autoimmunity and um, help her body to fix it, and she still, um, to this date, she still have her jobs, and her health is getting better. 
When we talk about the impact of IBS, we know that there are certainly two types of diabetes, juvenile diabetes, yes. essentially you're born with, and then adult onset or type 2 diabetes. The fact that we're seeing such an alarming increase in the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, what do we attribute to that? Is that largely because of lifestyle and diet? Lifestyle and diet can be a factor to it, but there's, there's more. People are not impacted with the food that they are eating that can be a big aspect as well because a lot of the uh, the problem that we're facing the a lot of disease that we're facing is autoimmunity your own immune system is starting to affecting your bodies so the food that we're eating for example the genetic modified food can be one that affected that's affecting the guts so food with additives preservatives lots of chemical base in them and yes it's actually triggering the body's own immune system and, and essentially what the, the body's attacking itself yes ex- exactly mm. what happened is that most most of the diet is we either eat from a bag a bottle or a can mm-hmm. there's a lot of preservatives so it's affecting the the gut when it's affecting the gut's there's to cause inflammation of the guts, so the the body will send signals to at, start attacking, attacking your own tissue. To start with, most of the time you start with the gut. Eighty percent of the immune system is in the gut. We call it the second brain. So not only that, we have to take a look at the blood sugars. We have to take a look at elsewhere too. The blood sugars is controlled by the liver, right? And also because the liver is making sugars and then also the pancreas is making insulin. So that's the two organs that directly have an impact on your blood sugars. But not only that, we have to take a look at the adrenal gland. People are feeling very tired, feeling very fatigued. That's more of for the adrenal gland. Can't sleep at night, having a hard time staying asleep. Okay, We have to take a closer look at their adrenals. Another example is that when people have pain and they're taking cortisone injections or taking some cortisone, they will see that their fluctuation of their blood sugars, actually the blood sugars increase when they have cortisone. The cortisone is made to the adrenal. That's just an example of how it's the adrenal is affecting the blood sugars. The thyroid and the gut, is, like, like I said earlier, is related. Um, we have to take a closer look at the autoimmunity. So we have to chase the root cause of the problem so that we can fix the body, so the body can actually heal itself, so you have better health. From a healthcare professional's perspective, let's talk a bit about the approach that traditional healthcare model has taken in addressing these issues. Normally, an individual has a diagnosis of adult onset or type 2 diabetes. There might be a recommendation for insulin, either by injection or by pill, other methodology that's in an effort to try and bring it back balance to the blood sugars. But is that necessarily the healthiest way to approach this? It would almost seem to be more of a, an approach dealing with the symptoms as opposed to the root cause. Exactly. When I was talking about like the conventional way of dealing with it, save life because it's dealing with acute. Okay, like If I have a heart attack, if, if there's a surgery that's needed, it will save my life. That's a good way of like acute emergency onset. But when you're dealing with diabetes, which is considered as a chronic condition, if you're using the different models of approach of dealing uh, with the diabetes, it's not going to be effective because that's just dealing with the symptoms. Like insulin is dealing with the blood sugars. It's not 
fixing the root cause of the problem. Therefore, we have to look what else other than just the blood sugars can be a potential harm to our body, and uh, so that the, the disease process of the diabetes would not get worse. Mm-hmm. Because we know that diabetic patients are suffering because once they are on medications, and then their dosage get increased to a point that they need insulin. So the problem is not resolved. So what we need to do is that we need to find out what is wrong with the bodies? What's wrong with the system? And we need to detect it correctly, doing all the appropriate tests to find out what is wrong with it and then fix the issue. Failure to do so comes with a whole host of other severe side effects, does it not? I mean, we often hear about cases where um, patients with diabetes have issues in terms of uh, blood flow to the extremities. We hear cases in extreme situations where they have to have an amputation of a foot, um, kidney disease. Um, hypertension what else and also like the vision issue and the problem is that they are taking all the medications to control the blood sugars however they are still facing a lot of disease that you just mentioned previously neuropathy vision problem kidney dialysis and worst of all of course the amputation of the foot or the leg because the underlying reason is not the blood sugars only it is elsewhere that we need to manage we have to manage the bodies I call it the five pillar of health the detoxifications the nutrition you have to put in the right nutrition so the body can heal the exercise the hormones and also the nervous system we have to face with all angles so that the body is able to function as it's optimal and the body is able to heal itself. If folks want to get more information, again, I'll mention that this free consultation, a $287 value, is free to the first 25 callers. Simply call area code 510-818-1668. That's 510-818-1668. You can also get more information on the web at eastbaydiabetesdoctor.com. That's eastbaydiabetesdoctor.com. We talk about the issue of diabetes, type 2 in particular. Do you find a lot of patients, Dr. Dong, that have kind of resigned themselves to, this is my fate, Uh, my parents had diabetes before me, this is kind of the the genetic line here, and so I'm just going to take the insulin and do the best I can. Do you meet a lot of patients that have that attitude? And what is their response when you tell them, look, you don't have to relegate yourself to living with diabetes, that in fact this is reversible? We need to have hope. Where do we get the hope? Because the power uh, already given to us. Don't look elsewhere. The first thing that you need to do is to look inside you. We are the source of the diseases. When we take responsibility that is our fault, then we can make changes to improve any health condition that we have. Because the genetic disposition is nothing that you can change. If it's part of your genetic history, it's part of your genetic history. But so much of what you're suggesting here today, doctor, is that much of causal of this is lifestyle. lifestyle. 80% is lifestyle and 20% is genetics because his genes can be active or inactive, okay? Like cancer genes, but it's either on or off. Mm -hmm. So lifestyle really trumps genetics. So there's always hope that we can reverse the, the health issue that we have. So your real goal here is to turn off that diabetes, that type 2 diabetes switch through diagnosis number one and then secondarily lifestyle change. Once people get involved in the program, what kind of results are you seeing? How is their how is their life changing in terms of the quality of their health? They come in, they smile more. I'm reducing my medications, not only one but multiple, because a lot of diabetic they have pain as well. They're taking strong pain medications as well. So not only that we help them to reduce 
the medication naturally, systematically, with the doctors, with their medical doctor's permission to do so. We do doing very systematic in the procedures that it will be having the most benefit for their health. It's almost a partnership then in that sense. It has to be a partnership. My job is to help you to find out what is wrong with it and then coach you along the pathway and give you the educations and give you the right direction how we can reverse the health issue that you have together. So imagine reversing the process of the impact of diabetes and as Dr. Dong mentioned earlier, we talk about some of the ancillary issues that it's creating, hypertension, high cholesterol, kidney disease, blindness, uh, loss of extremities at the extreme end of the impact of diabetes. Getting to the source of the problem and then a lifestyle change that will allow you to once again encourage your body or give your body the tools that it needs in order to begin healing itself. Can you imagine finally being free of the impact of diabetes? Find out more. To the first 25 callers, you can receive a complimentary consultation, a $287 value without cost or obligation. Simply call area code 510-818-1668. That's 510-818-1668. The offices of Dr. John Dong, East Bay Thyroid and Diabetes Institute. Again, information too on the web, eastbaydiabetesdoctor.com. That's eastbaydiabetesdoctor.com. Or to call to schedule your free consultation, again, a $287 value, yours absolutely free for the first 25 callers. So call now, 510-818-1668. That's 510-818-1668. Dr. Dong, we appreciate you coming in today and sharing this exciting news. Thank you. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.